Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David. This is the show where we talk about cannabis, about startups, about MSOs, about raising money, about acquisitions. And this episode is a little more on that side. Uh, we have Ben Kovacs, who's former CRO, Chief Revenue Officer of NorCal. He also worked at Twitter when it IPO'd. He's one of the co-founders of Meister. He's now on the board of a company called Next Green Wave. Really, really deep systems thinker in this industry. One of the smarter people that we have behind the scenes. He has a very interesting perspective on some of the bigger cannabis deals, M&As, public companies, some of the stuff that we probably should talk about more on this show, and we're working on that. Uh, he and I are putting together some more stuff for the future. He's going to be on again. Uh, so today is kind of a combination of his background, his experience, his knowledge, but also some topical things that we talk about. Um, he also has a healthy dose of cynicism. Uh, he's a little bit jaded, which I love in this industry because there's still too much happy talk. He gives it to you real every single time. Ben is a friend of mine and I love the episode. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. I was thinking about when I woke up today, I thought about you when I woke up today, uh, and I was thinking about how I would introduce you, how I would frame exactly who you are and what you do. And, and it's kind of difficult. You do a lot of different things, and that's coming from someone that does a lot of different things. Um, we met how long ago now? Two, two years ago? Two plus years ago? Uh, and I think you were just sort of dabbling, starting to think about the cannabis industry, you have a really rich tech background, which we're going to talk about, rich in terms of experience, maybe the money, you know, we could talk about some other time. Um, so how do you, for, let's just start with this. How do you describe yourself? If you were at a dinner party uh, and your wife were to introduce you, what would she introduce you as? Well, my wife is a little... Uh... She's a little blinded by love, I would say. So she thinks I think I'm a bigger deal than what I am. So she likes to introduce me as... She thinks you're a bigger deal. Say that again? Oh. She thinks I'm a bigger deal than what I am. Okay, yeah. got it. So she she likes to introduce me to her family and friends and stuff now as like the king of cannabis. And as you know, that is far from the truth. But um, uh, but you're making good <laughs> strides, I would say. So yeah, I mean, I, I got into cannabis around the time actually that I met you. You know, we had, Davis and I had, had the hardware company for a while, but I was very passive with that. And, um, you know, I'd started the nonprofit, taken some time off work when I was working at Twitter and I really wanted to get back into something that was actually making money instead of, you know, just focusing on the nonprofit. So I decided to start investing in cannabis. That was around the time when I met you, I put together some SPVs for some different companies. So you started when you said, okay, like a lot of people that you said, I want to be invested in the cannabis industry. Yeah. Where did that spark come from? Do you, did you like weed? Did you know somebody else that did it? Why? I think I just always felt that it would be a good um, fit for my skill set. I mean, I have a finance background. I've traded, you know, equities my whole life and done other types of investing and real estate and everything else. So I just have a pretty decent baseline. I'm not, you know, the world's greatest investor or, you know, the world's savviest um, as far as the technicalities or anything like that. But I have a good enough base to understand it. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always kind of had this analogy that... If you're working in cannabis, you have to be able to wear Jordans to the farm and wear a suit to the boardroom, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this interesting mix of people where you have these kind of private equity New York hedge fund guys or whoever coming in that are the suits, and you've got the 
old school growers and extractors and everybody who's worked in the industry. And I have kind of a weird, I'd say like bridge to be able to talk to both groups of people and really understand them and earn the trust from the people who have been in the industry for a while and not come off as a suit and then be able to speak the language and be articulate enough and be able to have the experience to talk to the suits, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that was why I, in some ways, identified cannabis beyond the obvious idea that it's just a growing industry and it's something that I've been involved with, you know, personally for a while. I just felt, wow, like there's a great opportunity here to kind of get in somewhat early, you know, uh, learn the ropes, um, meet a bunch of great people and see if I can make a career out of it. Mm -hmm. And you sure have, my friend. Um, I just back up a little bit. You spent how long at Twitter? A couple years at Twitter? Three and a half years. Three yeah. and a half years in mainly sales mm -hmm. roles. Is that right? Yep. Um, which I'm sure was an exciting time. What what year was that at, at Twitter? I worked there uh, 2013 through 2016, uh -huh. um, about two years before the IPO through a year and a half after the IPO. So it was a really exciting time. I got to see Twitter in probably its most exciting stage there as it, as it IPO'd. And then I got to see sort of the downdraft where... Um, things just weren't going as well after the IPO and there was a CEO change and a bunch of other sort of, you know, issues that came out and obviously Instagram and Facebook and some of these other platforms really kind of exploded their growth while Twitter was stagnant for a while. And, uh, it's, it's nice to see Twitter actually sort of resurging here in, in the last couple of years and really seem like it's finding its, its relevance and its growth again. Well, that's one way to put it. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Trump and shadow banning and censorship on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I, I do have lots of thoughts on it. I mean, I, I, I actually, you know, not to get too off topic, but I... can move on if you want. I have a little bit. I mean, I, I think one of the things that Twitter needs to do a better job of is actually sort of verifying everyone. You know, I've always believed that they should have a policy where you upload your ID, you pay $10 a month, and then everybody's verified. I don't necessarily love how Twitter creates sort of this inequality by verifying certain people and not others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually... Um, I actually reached out to one of my friends there who runs talent and I said, you know, can you, can you verify Ben Kovler? I don't even uh -huh. know Ben Kovler, yeah. but he is the CEO of one of the largest U S cannabis companies. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of like, yeah, like now nah, we're not really like focused on that or that's not my department. Ben Kovler of GTI, by the way. Yeah. Right. And I, Cause I was thinking that'd be a nice gift for him to say, that Hey, I got nice you verified gift. on Twitter. But I was just thinking like, this is so ass backwards, right? We're worried about some, you know, third rate, um, <laughs> you know, up and coming musician that, has 10,000 followers, but yet the CEO of one of the three largest publicly traded U.S. cannabis companies can't get verified. That's crazy. And, and I think, thank you for bringing it back to cannabis. Uh, is there still a behind the scenes hesitation with this industry? Are we just not there yet? Because you would think of all the companies in the world that Twitter would be quite progressive on this issue, no? Quite progressive in terms of what? I'm just saying like, I believe that behind many closed doors, there is a don't ask, don't tell about cannabis. And I believe that it's the same on Twitter. And I think the fact that you brought up specifically an executive in the cannabis industry is probably a reason that he's not verified. <laughs> Maybe no, not? No, I mean, I don't think, I mean, the ad policies obviously at Twitter, they're, they're very bound by, right? Like you can't advertise yeah. cannabis products on Facebook, but Instagram, don't Twitter, Google. Together? No, I don't, I don't no. think it's that. I think it's more just like the company's focus is more on like that traditional talent, right? Um, but, you know, I have, a, I have a hard time 
agreeing with the verification policies when you know someone can game the system and write a book for $10,000 and pay Amazon to make it a quote unquote bestseller and they can get right. verified where again the CEO of a publicly traded awesome cannabis company you know has to jump through 10,000 hoops and call in five favors and I think it's you know Twitter's doing themselves a disservice because that's those are the stickier people obviously long term than these kind of fleeting musicians or fly by night artists or yep. you know whoever it is so anyway yeah interesting anyway off topic, nonetheless. Um, so we met several years ago. And I think at the time, there was a lot, a lot of cash moving around mm -hmm. in this industry. Um, and I think that you reached out. You had heard the show or something, and you reached out. And we had a meeting. And actually, it was the first time that I met Meister, who we just had on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, and we had a fascinating discussion, not only about the Meister and the future and the hardware and the brilliance <coughs> that is that, but then it became clear that you had much bigger ideas in terms of the cannabis industry. Um, and I think it took you quite some time to sort of wrap your head around exactly what that was going to look like. You know, you did your due diligence, you sort of thought through it. We had a lot of different discussions. Um, and then before I knew it, you landed this amazing job. Um, you and I started talking about some investments. You met some people. I think I introduced you to some people. And then one day you called me and you said, I'm going to be the what? At what? What was your title exactly? I can't remember. Uh, Chief Revenue Officer at NorCal. That's, that's a pretty big job for someone that did not have a cannabis background, right? Um, and I think that says two things. I think it says something about you and your chameleon nature, which is rad. But I think it also says something about where we are in the cannabis industry that we're still in the transitional, we need all the help we can get from other places kind of place, right? Mm -hmm. And like, it, that's just still starting. Like the fact that you had this Twitter background and this finance background, right? You know, like that's so valuable to NorCal. And then we're going to talk about what you do today too. But I just think it's a very interesting place to look at and say like, wow, how many industries of this size has there been so little qualified talent for? in history so very little you know so very few examples that way you know maybe like when microchips like first came around you know like um. yeah i mean it's it's tricky right I, I think it's been i think a lot of the big companies are actually struggling with this right now which is they're they're going out and they're actually hiring pretty top tier talent in a lot of cases i think marketing is probably the biggest example of maybe where you see this because everybody wants to pull marketers from big tech or cpg and a lot of them are really struggling, frankly, in cannabis, and um, especially in California cannabis. And I think that everybody thinks they're going to change the industry, that they're going to go after and find the new consumer, and that that's how they're going to, you know, really make their make their mark. And as you know, that's been very challenging to kind of convert the new consumer into cannabis in a big way. The real money is still in sort of the old school consumer, the guy or girl who comes into the dispensary multiple times a week. And buys the value products, or you know, is price insensitive maybe for the for the big products or the most more expensive products. But you know, it's been it's not the person who comes in and buys one vape pen every nine months no. um, and pays twice as much for it. Like that's not the real money market right now. And so I think you've seen a lot of turnover in these marketing departments at, at different companies. A lot of people actually come into the industry and realize, wow, this is actually still sort of a lot more grimy if you want to say it or boots on the ground or less sophisticated yes. you know old school dispensary buyers you have to remember are a lot of them have been in the industry for 10 or 20 years it's still literally like texting like bruh <laughs> let me get x like that's how the weed industry still works sometimes 
I know the more sophisticated, you know, the Marchant Ashes of the World and Apothecarium and Medmen. We won't get into the <laughs> Medmen discussion, but anyway, like they're they are making it more sophisticated and corporate, but there are at least half of the dispensaries in this state where it's very just like yeah. mom and pops. Yeah, it's both, right? Like there's some corporate chains that have centralized buying and look at data, and then there's a lot of kind of back room, you know. Yeah handshake buddy buddy deals yeah. you know and and uh you have to be able to kind of play both sides or i mean you don't have to i guess you got to be able to, to to focus on whatever works for your company but my point is a lot of these you know high price marketers and you know people who worked in cpg and other industries came in with their playbook and they just got railroaded mm -hmm. it just didn't work just didn't work yeah it the, just didn't work and the margins so, aren't there, you know, for a lot of these companies, right? You might only be making a dollar or two at the end of the day selling a jar of weed. And so when you put, you know, a $250,000 marketing executive or marketing director on top, and then you put all the programs they want to run and all the swag and all the, you know, other things and the sales team, all of a sudden it's like, how the hell are you making any money? Mm -hmm. You're not. You're and not. then eventually the company looks at it and goes, well, we can't afford all these programs. And they go back to basics. I mean, how much money in this industry was wasted on billboards or music festivals or uh, it's just like maddening to me um, and a big part of that has to do with the fact that there's no digital there's very little digital marketing right and i understand that um some very smart people working on that flower agency working on that a lot um hundreds of millions hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for sure like, yeah i mean it's well there's some stat that i think 60 percent 60 cents of every dollar that's invested, venture capital that's invested, goes back into Google or Facebook ad spend. Mm. In cannabis or just in all industries? No, in just in venture capital. Yeah, I believe that. So think about that, right? Think about if 60% of invested dollars are going to those two channels, how could cannabis compete? Think about that. Like that's more than half of the potential ad spend, right, of your company. And if you think about, like, I, I think, give or take, maybe you have a different opinion on this, marketing should be, like, 10 or 15% of top-line revenue. Yeah, eight, yeah, 8 is a more standard number. But yeah. I'm talking about startups, maybe, mm. yeah. Maybe more advanced companies, right? And so, like, think about the size of that opportunity in cannabis, Um to offer a real digital marketing solution. Well, the biggest problem for cannabis, specifically in California, has been that even when you dump money into marketing, right, if you don't own the end consumer, I mean, this is the advantage Ease has. You know, when Ease gets an order, when they get you as a consumer, they have an LTV on you because now they have your data, they know what you bought, and they can remarket to you with emails and text messages for the next promotion or the next, you know, delivery date or holiday or whatever. So that, that makes sense to me. But a lot of the companies that actually are just selling into dispensaries, they might have a decent brand, they might have a good flour, they might have good gummies, whatever it is, they're lost. They Their customer is the dispensary. And then the 250 people that bought their product that month, they have no fucking clue who those people are. Mm. So they put this money into marketing to essentially drive them into a dispensary. And once they get to the dispensary, as you know, the bud tender um, can just shift them around wherever they want whatever they want for 90 percent. 90 percent of people will just take the recommendation and buy what they suggest and take an alternative to that product so it's like it's very hard for me to justify dumping a lot of money into marketing when you don't own that consumer as a plant touching cannabis brand so i love what you brought up and i want to ask an additional question which is how strong is the physical brick and mortar retail channel in cannabis in the future 
there's been so much money put into dispensaries and licenses and everything. Why, why wouldn't we buy weed the same way we buy everything else? We will. On Amazon. Yeah, of course. So like all of this infrastructure and money that's being spent on retail licenses and locations, like why? I, I, I still, I don't know if there's, the market is just so big that it can support all of it. Well, it won't be one or the other, right? Like even like today with retail, you have Target thriving and you have Amazon thriving and you have Walmart thriving. It's not like everyone's going to do one thing. People still like the disco- the stores, especially for discovery. But wait, hold on. Like, okay, you said Walmart, but like aside from Walmart, who is thriving in retail? Like, it's not working that well. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's there's lots of smaller shops that are thriving for you know specific things like furniture shops and you know little you know mom and pop shops and yoga studios and you know whatever. There's things that are still working that you you can you yes. can use, but. To your point, I think maybe the multiples are, are somewhat still overextended considering where the future is going. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a massive consolidation right now because, as you know, there's these... I mean, look at Glasshouse. They're a perfect example. I think in one of their recent press releases, they said that they sell 15 times the amount of, of SKUs or amount of flour in their own stores that they control versus third-party stores that their brand is in. Yep. That's fucking staggering. That's not like... Oh, we sell a little bit more. We sell two times as much, 15 times as much, which tells you like, again, they can showcase their products a certain way. They can train their bud tenders to recommend their products. They can do promotions and sales and BOGOs and things like that to push their product. And that's extremely important. So if you're a grower, um, you know, even the company that I'm on the board of now, publicly traded company called Next Green Wave, we grow five, 600 pounds a month going through an expansion process to, you know, significantly uh, upsize the the grows. So where does that product go? Well, today it goes into the bulk market and it goes into specific dispensaries. But it sure would be nice to have 10 retail stores where we knew every month that that product was going to go and what it was going to be priced at and all the derivative products could then be sold. Because that's also, by the way, a huge deal. Like it's very hard to start a gummy brand. It's very hard to start an infused pre-roll brand. But if you own the stores then you can essentially make any products you want because you know that your stores are going to sell through them and it actually makes sense then. Well, you have to remember that cannabis is a big M&A game right now and uh-huh. it's big business and it's a lot of spreadsheets. And today, it still makes sense to acquire retail at the right price. But the right price is, I would say, going down and the deals are getting structured more favorably, right? Where people are covering their tax liabilities. They're making sure that they're buying things on EBITDA instead of top line. Yeah. And, you know, as the deals, you know, I think there was a dispensary in the desert that just changed hands, the biggest dispensary in Palm Springs not that long ago. And I want to say it traded at like three to four times EBITDA. Uh-huh. I mean, okay, like that makes that's sense. Normal. That's fine. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's not, you know, four times top line. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I think that it does make sense. And especially when those companies start to piggyback their own delivery and things off of it, like everybody has their own plan, right, of what they think. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of cannabis operators are playing for 20 years. They don't care if Amazon dominates in 20 years. They need to like get their earnings up or they need to get their company public and get liquid and but, get out. But do you feel how short-sighted that is? I mean, let's like take a step back and look at this industry because cannabis is one of the oldest products in the world, right? So like we've chosen this point in time to say, oh, it's going to be legal now. But like far into the future, cannabis is going to be relevant in some form or another, right? And so... To your point, 
you either have to acquire the licenses the natural way, right, the, the organic way, or you have to acquire them, right, through, through M&A. And doesn't that essentially mean that, at least in the short term, to your point, forget Amazon in the future, that the ones that are going to win are really just the MSOs that are best at acquisitions and mergers? Yeah, that's, I mean, people keep asking me, where do I put my money in cannabis? And everyone's first uh, thought is, I'm going to put it in Tilray and Canopy and Aurora, because that's what I've heard about on right. CNBC. Right. And I immediately have to cringe and yeah. explain to them why they're not going to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the management team strength, how well capitalized they are, which kind of goes hand in hand to a large extent. And then the secret sauce is the M&A teams. And I've gone through, you know, transaction discussions with a lot of the big MSOs for the various companies that I've, you know, now worked at or, or represented in some way. And I can't tell you the night and day difference between some of the M&A teams and how they do it. And two of the two multi-billion dollar companies that I've worked with specifically have basically one guy who's their M&A team. And that one person <laughs> might be working on two, three, four, even six or seven deals at one time. Mm -hmm. And of course they're leveraging their legal team and their bankers and things like that to help them. But they're like, you know, they don't have time to look at deals. Then I worked with one company who had an internal juggernaut of a team of former investment bankers and hedge fund managers. And they had like, I want to say they had nine in-house lawyers, a full-time, either one or two in-house litigators, a massive accounting team, and then a team of, I think like seven to 10 former investment bankers and um, hedge fund managers who are running their M&A process. Now that company was looking at tw maybe 200 deals to do one or two. So they were instantly, you know, whittling down, you know, to, to 10% and taking the 10% and curating it to 2% and then grinding those deals to the last, you know, 1%, making sure that every stone was on you know, uh, was, was looked under and that there was no liabilities and the projections were all right in the pro formas. And at the end of the day, they're not going to pay more than, you know, if this company, let's just say they're trading at 20 times 2022 EBITDA, you know, they're paying three to five times for most of their acquisitions. So they're not like going after something and saying, oh, well, it's 16 times EBITDA. It's still accretive. They're going after things and saying, no, we only want home runs. We want things that are massively accretive, things that we can pay for in all stock or 99% stock most of the time when we can. If we're going to use our cash, it's going to be even a better deal. And you think of the advantage that a company like that piles up where they're continuing to do these deals that accretively and that intelligently and can serve their cash for the next great opportunity. And then when they go to the market and they tell that story of how they're doing deals, then people want to give them more money because they go, holy shit, you guys are amazing stewards of capital. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Elon Musk said this in his own industries. He said, "All I, what is running a company? A company is simply allocating capital most efficiently. That guy's not building rockets. Yeah. He's <laughs> allocating money and hiring teams of engineers that are building rockets and building self-driving cars. And that is his job, right? Allocate money, raise money and allocate it appropriately. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, motivate the team and whatever. But that's what's happening in cannabis be right now. Be on SNL. Yeah, be on SNL. But that's what's happening in cannabis right now. The people who are better capital allocators are really starting to win and more money will continue to flow to them. And unfortunately, you know, the real thing that a smaller company I feel like can do is either just watch over time as their prices get eroded and their their power to get into stores and on shelves gets eroded, or they can they can join with the bigger players and say, you know what, we're gonna go along for the ride with you because we think you're a billion dollar MSO that's gonna 10X 
and be a $10 billion MSO over the next three or four years, and it's a way better deal for us to sell our company to you today at X, de-risk ourselves, get more liquid, right, with a bigger company, and then ride along with the right players for the future. And I've seen this, you know, play continuing to unfold down, obviously, whether you're a cannabis investor or whether you're a cannabis operator, finding the right MSOs and the right larger players to hit your wagon to is going to be the difference. It's everything. It's, it's everything. It's everything. It's everything. Um, what's it called when you're attracted to someone's brain? What's that called? Like sapiosexual? Is that what it is? I, you know I, what I'm saying? Like no, there's a. I never heard a term for that. Really? No. Oh, it's like when you're like attracted to someone's um, genius. I don't know. I'm just saying that was really well said. Oh, thank you. And I enjoyed I appreciate it. Appreciate that. Man. Um, no, it, it's. You and I have been talking about doing more stuff together, and it's just what you just said points it out so perfectly. On this show for many years, going on six years now, um, we've talked about how to go from zero to one, right? Over and over and over and over again. How to raise your first $250,000, how to get your first partners, how to figure out your supply and your distribution. What's a cap table? You know, these kinds of things we've been doing. But actually, in order to win in cannabis going forward, it's going to be the ability to go from one to two, hmm. right? And frankly, like, that's knowledge that you just have more of than I do. And that's why it's really exciting to think about the ways that we can sort of intermingle what we do. And maybe if you're going to start a podcast or you could be on this podcast more or whatever, but there is a real like public private debate. And by the way, at scale, they still work together, right? You know, all companies start as private companies, right? Yeah. Um, and actually they stay private for much longer than we're used to in cannabis because we've all these reverse, whatever, nonsense, RTOs, shits. But so there is a real synergy there, right? And there's also varying stages of venture capital that sit along the way as well as private equity that sit along the way. So it's very interesting as we sort of start to have more of these discussions as we see locations like New York open up, right? Um, I plan to move to New York on behalf of a couple cannabis companies in the fall. I know that you intend to spend some time there. That's generally still considered the center of the finance world. What does that mean in terms of early stage cannabis in New York and New Jersey, are we going to kind of like just skip the startup stage? Is it going to be like, oh, well, we've got all the money. We know how to do this. Let's just buy this, buy this. We got this license. Okay, now we're fucking MSO. I have to admit that I don't think I'm, you know, the preeminent expert on the New York cannabis Nobody market. Nobody is, man. But, you know, well, no, there's people who know a lot, have a lot deeper understanding than us, I would say, on that, that one thing. Um, you know, I guess what I would what I would say is that to, to just finish your f earlier point out is <laughs> your focus is, is a little bit more, your passion is more on startups in yeah. the space. My passion is a little bit more on like how we're going to, you know, take one plus one plus one that already exists and create five. But, but it goes beyond passion. Yes, you're right. It's actually just experience level, right? And I think that's why people listen to podcasts. Hmm. It's not because I'm super into it, Right. I'm, I'm super into like uh, documentary, history documentaries, 
That doesn't mean I make them. It doesn't mean that you should pay attention to my opinion on them, right? Yeah. It's an experience level. And my experience happens to be in really early stage startups. And your experience is in much larger companies than that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I just think there's a beautiful synergy there. I think that's where you're headed anyway. But yeah, more than a passion. Well, Nick, you know, we talked about this before is, you know, there's an abundance in cannabis, right? Like, you know, me, I am, you know, I am starting my podcast and I am starting my newsletter and everything called Smoky Mirrors. And, you know, the whole idea is kind of a play on words that there's a lot of pitfalls and a lot of kind of noise and a lot of uh, fluff in cannabis and cannabis investing. Everybody's got some some uh, some snake oil to sell you. So I want to talk about a few of those narratives because as the title of your soon to be made <laughs> podcast, Smoky Mirrors, you have quite a cynical view. And it's one of the things I love about you is you have quite the contrarian view of the world, but more specifically cannabis. And so you hit on one of them, which is like, can there be money? Is there still money to be made hmm. in buying Tilray and CGC and, you know, the ones everybody knows about? So, um, I mean, I stole this from um, my friend Trent Wolovec, who works for Jushi. Trent's probably one of the smartest cannabis people that um, I've ever met. Um, he's also kind of a very cynical guy in a lot of ways, not a non-believer in most things. He'll walk into 100 grows and 99 of them he'll laugh at and be like, this is dog shit. Um, but a great guy who has the, you know, the, the ability to walk into a grow, who's commercial, who understands the sales aspect, who understands the regulation multi-state. Definitely a guy you should have on the show someday. Absolutely. But Trent, Trent phrased it to me like this. The greatest trade ever that will happen in cannabis is when the safe banking happens eventually and, and or uh, U.S. plant-touching companies like GTI and Verano and Curaleaf and Jushi can list on the NYSE or the NASDAQ. You are going to see such a crazy flow out of those Canadian stocks and into the U.S. stocks, right? That will be one of the greatest trades ever. So to your question, is it too early? I believe that just like you saw in crypto, retail investors could front-run institutions for the last 10 years for the first time ever probably in history. And the people that made all the money were not Goldman and Morgan and everybody else for the first time, but it was the guy who was mining in his mom's basement as an 18-year-old, right, or buying Bitcoin at $100. They made the money. And, of course, that's to play out where it goes from here. But it's the same still in cannabis. If you are a big institution, unless you're a family office type, you know, something like that, very few big institutions, banks, you know, funds, whatever, can buy publicly traded or private, I guess, U.S. cannabis companies today. If you want to buy the best U.S. companies, you have to go to the Canadian Stock Exchange. Guess who can't buy there? Robinhood traders, uh, big institutional traders. So if you can do the legwork and you can find a broker that allows you to buy those stocks there, in my opinion, you are still front-running one of the greatest trades that's ever about to happen. Mm. Now, will it be 100x? No. But I do believe as soon as these companies can uplist onto the exchanges, some of them are going to get really nice pops and you're going to see a ton of liquidity come in and their cost of capital for borrowing money and raising debt is going to go down from 17% to 15% to 12% to maybe it'll be 5%. Yeah, it won't be Apple, but it'll be yeah. crazy the amount of, of money yeah. that's there. So I, do, I don't believe that we are too early to make money if you pick the right companies and have that mindset. But I do believe that a lot of people are overly optimistic on how much money is going to be made in cannabis. And there's going to be a lot of losers still. Even some of those big companies, there's going to be some big losers in there eventually because they're just not all going to be able to have the earnings growth and um, just you know the growth in general as a company, I think, to justify trading at things like you know 20 times 2022 EBITDA. 
And remember, EBITDA is not free cash flow, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. EBITDA is a metric that has to be used because of 280E right now. And obviously, people are anticipating, by the rumor, sell the news, they're anticipating 280E and tax reform and everything like that. But I don't think it's going to be that easy because I think most local municipalities and even the federal government is going to look at cannabis as a big piggy bank. Yeah. And they're going to keep taxes high. The black market will continue to be a thorn in its side. And remember, cannabis is not alcohol, right? It doesn't make sense for you to brew um, Budweiser, you know, or whatever the fucking gallo, you know, wine in your yep. in your uh, your home. It makes sense to go to the store down the street and buy a six pack for twelve bucks. Yeah. But cannabis is a little bit different, right? Like you're buying a quarter a quarter of of good cannabis might cost you a hundred plus dollars in a store. So that's a very interesting question, and I actually think. A huge answer to that question is about brand. And there's a reason that you don't buy your neighbor's whiskey. Mm -hmm. And the reason is Jack Daniels is available everywhere and it's cheap. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's really just a matter of time before we have a Coors Light of cannabis. Right? It's only a matter of time before the people that want cheap weed now, that game is over. You know, like it's going to get there, right? The question that I wonder is at the higher ends, right? Is there still going to be this craft, small batch, like how indoor cannabis has been grown for many, many years, you know? Or is it just going to be like alcohol is, right? Where it's like, there's not really a need. Yeah, they have micro brews, but it's like such a small percentage of the market, right? Yeah, I think it'll be exactly how you just laid out, right? I mean, part of the reason there's no brands today, I would argue the only brand in cannabis really is Cookies. And their brand, if you think about it, is not, they don't even grow their own flower. I mean, right. Cookies is a brand because of its apparel and its, yeah, its hardware, its accessories, its hoodies. Like, that's why it's a brand. Because um, of Burner, basically. Right, and like the lifestyle. That cookies represents when but you work. But that's not shop. a model for others, by no, the way. But that's but my point is that there really is very few brands in cannabis right now, and I think a lot of that is because you have this this border, the borders, right? So you can't just take a California brand and put it in fifty states like you yep. can Coors Light, and you know that will change a little bit over time as you see these store these companies get denser and denser with their stores, and all of a sudden you know GTI has 500 stores around the country in five years. It's going to be a lot easier to kind of have this consistent brand sure. throughout them and build it. But today there really is very little loyalty to a brand, and you look at it like the seven of the top 25 flower SKUs in California, according to Pistol data, are uh, Packstone three and a half gram yeah. different bags, right, mm -hmm. different SKUs. Packstone is obviously an extreme value brand, right? I think the price is something like you know seven to twelve dollars wholesale. Not bad weed at all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. fine weed for the average consumer. Exactly, yeah. And when you figure, okay, that's getting marked up two to two and a half times at retail, right? So let's just say Packstone sells a bag for ten dollars uh -huh. to the store. The store is either selling that for twenty or twenty-five dollars, depending uh -huh. on their markup. Yeah. And then you have the excise tax and everything on top of that. So your out the door price is still thirty dollars, let's say, for that bag of outdoor or shitty mixed light, you know, Packstone weed. Isn't that exactly what I just said? That basically the Coors Light or whatever, and they're not there yet, right? But Glasshouse also has this opportunity yeah. to just like flood the market with cheap, very okay weed. And that's what most people want. Right. right? Well, this is, okay, and I'll take it a step further. This is the way I think about it. And I'm 100% sure this is going to play out. When I got into the industry a few years ago, uh, the plant touching side anyway, the 
common idea was how do you up level your weed to the next level? How can you grow a weed that's outdoor that's good enough to pass off for uh -huh. mixed light? How do you take mixed life weed and price it as indoor, indoor weed? Yeah. It's going to go the opposite. Yeah. You're going to have indoor producers, and you're already seeing this. I think Floracal's doing it a little bit. NorCal's done it with Lolo. Is take your indoor and try to price it at mixed light prices and say, you know what, we want to dominate the shelf space in this area because yeah. why would you buy mixed light weed when you can buy our indoor weed at the same price? So, um, and do, you ever, light do you ever go on Flower Company? you ever look at Flower Company? I do, yeah. It's actually a fascinating sort of like discovery of the industry and the pricing hmm. because they have a lot of different categories on there, right? There's like Just Weed, there's Fire Flower, there's like Top Shelf, you know, they've like done a good job of sort of breaking it out. But if you actually like dig in and look at what they're doing, the THC levels, the terpenes, the different cannabinoids, they're all over the place. It's not consistent by tier. Mm -hmm. And so what that shows you is that these brands are artificially moving around their pricing and their weed because they don't know what to do yet, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can go on Flower Co. one day and get like a $150 ounce that's like amazing. And then you can go other days and there'll be $60 ounces that like you don't want to even smell, you know? So it's just like they can't find the level of where they should be and where the market is yet. And Flower Co. just happens to be one of the kind of interesting results well, but, of that. But why, why is that, right? When you unpack that. And a lot of that is because companies are very seasonal in cannabis the way that they think about things. Like, for example, a good pound of indoor weed might only sell in the bulk market for $1,500 in January because the market's flooded with mixed light and outdoor product, right? And so they're desperate at that point to stick it in a jar and sell it. Mm -hmm. But then come August, the opposite uh, occurs, right? Where they're getting $2,800 for that same pound. Yeah. And sticking it in a jar or putting it on Flower Co. in an ounce bag is a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. And companies are so greedy today and so short-sighted because it's so expensive to run. It's not even greedy. They're just short-sighted that they can't just make it through the whole year and stick with a consistent offering right. because they're trying to maximize every month, every sale. Every that's whatever. bullshit. And that's dumb, right? It's dumb, like, yeah. Coors isn't doing that. They're not like, oh, shit, we can make more money selling our barley and because our hops. Because that's how you create a brand. Exactly. Right? You have to have a consistent experience. But what's going to change that? Price. It's going to change it as these big players come in that have literally hundreds of millions of dollars in their war chest. And they're going to go, yeah, we don't need to play the bulk market in August. We'll just keep the brand going, pump it into our stores. Uh -huh. And then they'll go to the other stores and say, hey, buddy, we got 12 stores in California. You have 10 stores. Why do we need sales teams and marketing teams? Let's just, I'll give you some shelf space here. You guys are, you know, specialized in mixed light. We're an indoor producer. You guys, you know, stizzy, let's say. You, you, you concentrate on your vapes. You don't care about flour that much. We'll, we'll trade cell space. We'll highlight your stizzy vapes in our 10 stores or 12 stores. You'll highlight our flour in your stores. We don't have to pay any sales commissions. We don't have to do any demo days. Bang, boom, done, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they do on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. You know, these big MSOs, they're all buddies. They broker weed to each other. Right. They don't have enough weed. They don't have enough good weed anyway to satisfy the demand in the stores in a state like Pennsylvania mm -hmm. or Virginia or wherever. So they're actually working together, you know, almost like a little like mafia, right? Of like, Hey, you got this territory. I got this territory. Like, how do we help each other out? I'll do you a favor today. Cause next month I'm going to need to hit my numbers and, you know, move this amount of product. It's, it's kind of amazing to watch. California's a little more cutthroat, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think that's how it's going to play out. And I do think that sort of the Jeff Bezos quote of your margin is my opportunity is really going to start to play out in cannabis because that spread there, like we just talked about with Pac Stone of how are they growing something, putting it in a bag, selling it for $10 or less in some cases, which means they're only making a few dollars, let's say on that sale when you factor in all their costs, if that, but the retail customers paying $30 out the door for that bag. Where the hell is all that money in the middle? It's going to taxes and it's going to rent for the store and it's going to paying the bud tenders a nice, healthy, you know, hourly wage and California benefits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I believe f discount dispensaries like you see with Finos or The Hook um, that are willing to take a 70% margin and negotiate lower prices on the front end for more volume from suppliers, they will be the dispensary models that start to win out, the Costco's of cannabis, if you will. And I love what Flower Co. is doing, right? I love how you can schedule delivery the next day or in two days, and you can get a much better price for something without leaving your home. Yep. And I think that as more people go into a dispensary, find out what they want, they start buying a significant amount of stuff, which for me right now is the Space Gem gummies. That's my favorite thing on the market. Great product. Great product, but not all dispensaries carry them. And you know they're $20, let's say, if they do carry them, plus tax and everything else. So now you're $30, let's say, in the store. And you can buy them on Flower Co. for you know almost 40% less than that, right? And get 10 packs delivered to your house mm -hmm. and not step outside your front door. Mm -hmm. and so why would those models not win out over time once people find out what they, they are want? are going to. I think what you said is, is brilliant. I also think that for the first time, cannabis consumers are having to ask themselves what they like. Before it was just like, I'll take what I can get. That was the weed industry for a long time, right? Or like, we've got these four SKUs. Mm -hmm. And now people have to ask themselves, like, do I like smoking pre-rolls? Is that, am I into that? Or like, do I, do I like Indicas? Do I like Sativas? Do I think those names mean anything to me at all? You know, do I like beverages? Is that a cool thing? I don't know. Like gummies or like, for the first time as a consumer, you really have to decide... Who am I and what do I like in cannabis, right? And and the vast majority of sales today is in smokables, right? Is in flour and in vapes, some dabs, but mostly flowers and vapes, some edibles. And there have been billions of dollars poured into the idea that the next wave of consumers are coming. The soccer moms, the low dose people, uh, the people that won't go to dispensaries, you know, um, is that true? Is that coming or are we just blowing ourselves? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's coming, right? Like there's going to be more people coming online, especially I'd say in these other States. I mean, California has been so, um, accommodating to people using cannabis for many years now that I feel like maybe we're a little skewed in our market. I we think, absolutely are, I think yeah. you'll see, you know, the new consumer come online more in, you know, these, these limited license states in the Midwest and places like this, specifically around things like sleeping and pain relief and, and kind of the obvious things where people want to replace dangerous um, prescription narcotics with something that's a little bit better, a lot better for their body. I think that's a no-brainer. Yeah, so I, I already think that that battle is almost won. Mm -hmm. Like in the hearts and minds of Americans. Anyway, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but I feel like most Americans, especially below a certain age, are comfortable with the idea that 
for pain mitigation and replacement of opioids like cannabis is it. I think the next battle is like, do I actually like this more than alcohol? Because that's, as you know, like the huge play here is like, can we get some course money? You know, can we siphon some people off? Are they going to drink cans? You know, are people going to be on Super Bowl Sunday, like with medicated salsa? Like, you know, is that infused salsa? Like, is that coming, you know, or? Yeah, well, I get, uh, yeah, I get the question. I mean, I, I think sorry. the drink, <laughs> I mean, hey, you smoke like three joints before the show, so <laughs> yeah, got to cut you off. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the beverages are definitely coming. I think the thing that's going to help the beverages is the DTC. Once you can actually deliver direct to consumer and someone can get a case of can or a case of Lagunitas hi-fi hops delivered to their house, yes. that's a much better business model than a dispensary who doesn't want to deal with the selling, you know, seven cans or seven packs a day and taking up a huge refrigerator in their small dispensary. I mean, can, C-A-N-N, can, the, the beverage company is the best marketing and PR cannabis company out there. Amazing. Without a doubt. Yeah. Luke and whatever the fucking, what's the other guy's name? Jake. Jake. <coughs> Did the, you see the video that they put on LinkedIn where they were making the drink? No, I didn't see it. Dude, it was only a couple days ago. Was, but, I mean, yeah, they got that. I mean, who cares about that? Money. But they're fucking, those two guys are unbelievable. They're great. They are, every time I open up LinkedIn or every time I look at something, they're doing something. They're doing another partnership. They have new fancy investors. They have new press and a big outlet, you know? Yeah. They are fucking working it. Like, yeah. whoever, like, those guys, whoever gave them money, like, your money is, like, working. Those guys go are back working and for listen it. to that show. Jake's been on the show. Yeah, so I met those guys, like, for a drink one time with, with Jigger when I was at, at Jigger Patel when I was at NorCal. And, you know, they were, you could just tell, they were hustling and they were working hard. Headquarters in Venice right here. But it's still a small market, Right. It's still a very it's small tiny. market. And I think I think they just did a partnership with GTI. I saw saw GTI saying something about it. But there I do I do think that segment is definitely gonna grow um, all over the place, but it's 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 definitely been, I'd say, underwhelming as far as just the volume and the numbers, and it's been hard for those guys to make money. Because so far. because and this is, is a fundamental cultural question. We don't have lounges yet, hmm. largely because of COVID. Right, we were on that path, and then COVID slowed it down a lot. Mm. There's something like a dozen licenses approved in Hollywood for lounges that just have not mm. been able to manifest. So we don't have that yet. So we don't really have that data. But the way people spend the most amount of money in the alcohol industry is at dinner, is at a bar, is with friends. They're not buying handles and going to their house, you know? <laughs> and so, like, cannabis is no different. And the question is, like, are we going to have an environment, sure, where you can smoke joints? Yes, seems like we are going to have that. Are we going to have environments where, you know, you order a can? Because if that's the case and we can make it cool, and can's just one example. Wonder is a great low-dose beverage. There's a company called Artet, which makes more like a liqueur, to, you know, kind of like mid-tier potency. A lot of great products out there. As to your point, not that many people want them. <laughs> not yet. And is that because people don't know about them? They don't have access to them? There's not the right environment to consume them? Well, they better hope so. <laughs> they better hope that those I mean, are the reasons. I mean, all of the above, right? And then you're going to have these people coming in for... I mean, first of all, they were really priced high for a while too, which is part of the problem, right? I think, you know, really by, the time, high. by the time you bought a Lagunitas in a dispensary, it was like $10 for one drink that might yeah. be five milligrams. And so from like a cost per milligram um, 
it's extremely expensive, right? Like 10 times the price of, let's say, a gummy. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's going to pick up over time, but 90% of those companies are going to fail. Can will definitely be one of the winners. I wish I liked the can product, by the way. It's too like sugary it. for me. It's gross. Have you tried Wonder? I haven't tried -E Wonder. I've seen it. I love I love the Lagunitas Hi-Fi Hops. That's a... Um, the Can of Craft product. Zynga Dude. Friend of mine. Zynga nice. Dude, sorry. Yeah. But um, anyway, Can's going to win because they're, they're crushing it on, on the marketing and the PR front and everything. And they will get acquired, no doubt, by like... That's got to be who like a Budweiser or somebody will look at and say, yes. yeah, we'll buy your brand. We'll buy you. We'll yes. aqua-hire you. You'll run our beverage division. And I've thought or for like a long, Red Bull. And I've thought for a long time that one of the most interesting jobs in cannabis and a job, one of the few jobs I would actually consider taking would be to work for one of the big MSOs. And your only job is to network with like the top 10 CPG companies and kind of keep them abreast of where you are right now in, in your journey, right? And so as soon as the switch flips to safe banking being okay, there's no doubt that Pepsi, Coke, and Heineken and Philip Morris and all these companies are going to buy the big cannabis companies. They have to. Why would they not? If your market cap is $100 billion and it costs you $5 billion to buy a top five US cannabis company that has vertical production and is in 12 states and you can make a 30-year bet on it, I'm sure the stock lift alone from Pepsi doing an acquisition like that will more than pay yes. for the cost of the acquisition. Yes. Right? Yes. And those companies are going to be glad to do it because they're going to trade out their, you know, volatile, challenging stock and operations, turn that problem onto Pepsi to deal with, yep. right? Yep. And, Which and, they are so good at handling. Right. That's like what they do. You well, know? And their lobbying and everything that comes along with it, right? And yeah. their connections. So that to me is the most interesting job but in see Canada. The, but see, the, to that exact example, the reason that hasn't happened yet, it has nothing to do with regulations. It has everything to do with the fact that it's unclear whether people want to drink their weed yet. Hmm. You know, the same question we're posing here, Pepsi's posing. Is this make sense? Sure, we can put weed in our drinks. But Pepsi doesn't need you to drink the drinks to make that investment, right? That That's part of it. But there are other, I mean, no matter how you consume cannabis, Pepsi, you know, doesn't Pepsi, they either own or used to own like Frito-Lays and all these other, you know, yeah, ancillary I think things. Right. It's, it's I not think that just was a merger. It's like Pepsi, Frito-Lay or some, some shit like that. But look, your point is well taken. They are a diversified company. If they want to make a play, they can make a play. But it would be a lot better if it was sure that they could make, you know, Pepsi green and a lot of people would buy it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. A lot of people have the the beverage question, right? It's it's not one that anybody I think has an exact answer to, other than DTC will definitely help it because if you're if you're can and you have ten thousand loyal customers around California, and there's eight hundred dispensaries, and you're only selling you know a few can packs of four to those people in each dispensary, you're not a great business for the dispensary. You're not a great business partner for them. They're not, they're simply not making enough money per square footage of what they have. And they're just keeping you in their case because they need to show that they have diversity of SKUs and they don't want people to not come in their store because they don't stock any beverages, but you're really not important to them. Mm -hmm. But if you have 5,000 people around the state that order your delivery once a month and they get a case of 24 for $72, because they love it, you have a great business overnight. But that's such an if. When it's not an if, you know this is coming, don't bullshit. I don't know, man. How do I know it's coming? 
Uh, every time I introduce a beverage to someone new. No, I'm talking about DTC. Oh, 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 oh. DTC for sure. I thought you were talking about beverages. So as soon as the DTC's there, the companies like Candescent or Can or these people that have these digital marketing backgrounds who understand CAC and LTV yes. and everything because else are going to the pour their money works. in there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and it's coming so much sooner than everyone realizes, I think. That's the thing. Like, the people that use FlowerCo, they get this. Mm -hmm. Because basically FlowerCo, what they were doing is they started with just the membership thing. And then they started offering brands two options where you could either have them on the normal Flower Co. menu or they would deliver for you direct to consumer. So if you wanted to drive the traffic, whatever, whatever, and do the transaction, they would fulfill it for you. Then they pulled back from that because they wanted to focus on the membership. They wanted to say, hey, we're this club. We want to be this club. This is what we raised money to do. We're not going to do this. So it's left this enormous hole for a fulfillment provider for D2C cannabis brands. Hmm. And that's being launched imminently, and it's gonna be a big deal. Um, I wish that I had invested in the company. I, I did not have the opportunity to, unfortunately. <laughs> Excuse me. But yeah, I totally agree with you. It's a paradigm shift. And then as soon as that happens in California, you're gonna see very quickly how in New York and Nevada and Arizona and Florida, all these brands are going to look around and say, hey, we're the ones that raised $100 million. Well, we don't need this retail layer. This layer is expensive. Like, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe to your point, they're just really focused on what the financials look like this quarter. Exactly. This quarter, um, this year, next year. They can't focus five years from now. They're, they're going to be all be selling their companies. But every, every company that you see today is trying to figure out their exit strategy, yeah. right? Yeah. The billion dollar companies trying to figure out how to get to five yeah. and how they're gonna you know, sell. That hundred million dollar companies trying to get to 200 million and, and exit for a nice little profit and bump from here. Everyone wants to get liquid and everyone needs to sell to the next group, right? Mm -hmm. And so nobody has the, the, the bandwidth to focus on and the cash and everything else to focus on 30 years from now, how they're gonna compete with Amazon when Amazon's delivering weed. They're not, they're gonna get crushed, right? Like when Uber comes into weed, it's going to affect Ease. I, I personally think, and I have no, you know, even though I'm friends with Roe, the CEO of Ease, I have no inside knowledge to this. Like, I do believe Uber will buy Ease. I think it's a smart play for them to do. Um, you know, people have acquired a lot dumber things. Cannabis is complicated. They already have a head start. You know, they already have infrastructure. They already have brands. They have distribution. Like, you might as well just buy that and bite the bullet and make your 10-year play if you're Uber, right? So... Anyway, everybody's going to up-level. Everybody's just trying to keep their head above water. They're, almost no one's making money in cannabis besides no. some of the cultivators, yeah. right? You know, like Next Green Wave, the company that I'm on the board of, you know, does about $1.7 million every month of EBITDA. Or, I'm sorry, of, of top line. 1.6, 1.7. This is all, you know, public information. You can look back over the previous six months. Mm -hmm. Every month does between, you know, $800,000 and $1.1 million of EBITDA on that 1.6 to $1.8 million of revenue. Mm -hmm. That is unbelievable mm -hmm. every month the company has six hundred eight hundred thousand dollars more of free cash in the in the bank oh. right and so the reason for that is because mike jennings the ceo is a stubborn motherfucker <laughs> but a smart motherfucker and he realized that why would i pay all of these salespeople and marketing people and everybody else high-priced executives m a people he's like i'm gonna grow weed 
I'm going to price it a little bit less. I'm going to stick it in a jar and I'm going to sell it for whatever I can sell it to bulk within reason to the right customers. And I'm going to just pull all that money to the bottom line. And now he's an extremely profitable company, right? With optionality to either go out and start buying dispensaries or delivery services or be a really beautiful acquisition target to a large MSO, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that so many people in cannabis were just bad operators. Like they followed... They followed what everybody told them to do, which is raise a bunch of money, dump it into marketing. Don't worry, there'll be more money to get next year. So mm -hmm. just build your brand, build your top line. And that was not that was not the right advice, unfortunately, looking back on it. Stubborn Mike made the right play to have a profitable company and now a lot of optionality of whatever he wants to do with it next. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, it's not just a cannabis lesson. That's just a lesson for business. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we've gotten so caught up in the Silicon Valley tech, raise a bunch of money, hockey stick growth scenario that we've lost sight of the fact that the point of business is to make money. Mm -hmm. It's not like to have headlines and be, you know, 30 under 30s Forbes. Like, the point is to, you know, have a good life. And whatever amount of money that makes sense to you to have that life is why we play the game, right? It's very simple. And I think sometimes people that are in the Silicon Valley orbit forget this. They get caught up in the un intangible parts of business when really they should just be focused on how do I build a great business that I want to have and that makes money and thus I'll have lots of options for what to do with it, right? Not let's raise $150 million so we can post really high revenue numbers only to be gone two years later. Yeah, it's, just a, it's like a Ponzi scheme, right? You're just like, I got to either raise more money or sell the company before it's I run It's worse than a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme has somebody at the top that's smart enough to be manipulating <laughs> it. This is just foolish. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But it's getting better, right? Like the new operators are coming in and, you know, there's some it's really... getting better in other states. I don't think it's getting better in California. Honestly. You don't? No. Hmm. I think it's becoming ever more complicated. Basically, this has been in the year of the MSO in California. You know, people coming here and deciding, now's the time. We're going to put our flag down in California. And, well, maybe you haven't seen it yet, but it's coming. And I'm not sure that, like, it's going to work here. I think it's so weird here and kind of awesome in a weird kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it will work for the... I, I, I see it, too. I know a bunch of groups who are coming in right now and making these, like, 10 to 15 store sort of acquisition plays over the yeah. next 18 months. Yeah. and. I think it will work for them to a certain extent, right? Mm -hmm. As long as they have everything, as long as they're vertically integrated, they control the product that goes in their stores. I don't know if it'll be home run city like they think it will be right. because right. there is this like crazy black market here and all this competition and, you know, people just... And D to C. And D to C. Honestly, the combination between black market and D to C, man, like... But, but D to C will take time. Like, think about it, right? You know about Flower Cove. You've known about Flower Cove for years. And Flower Co. has been a good service, actually, for years. Yeah. For anybody who wants to pay literally 50% less, less on their wheat. But Flower Co. is a minuscule, minuscule thing compared to ease and compared to the but dispensary why business. That? Why is that? I just think it's because they haven't had the money to market it. 
I really think that's the whole answer. And and I, I can't speak to like the inner circle of Flower Co. and like what's going on there. Mm-hmm. But like it seems to me that if Ease had started this and had the funding, you know, they had just like had this offshoot earlier, it would be a much bigger portion of the market than Flower Co. represents today. I think that that model, said differently, I think that model has a lot of legs. Mm-hmm. It just hasn't been executed on yet. So, you know, that's it's kind of the interesting part, too, to, is why not Ease? Like, if Ease already has all of the customers' information and all the drivers and all the depots, do you think Ease has never thought about D2C? Like, they're not stupid. Yeah. Roe is really fucking smart, actually, and their team is really smart, So, and their investors are deep-pocketed. They have two billionaire investors, basically, that have funded that company for the last few years. I mean, they they must be not doing D2C for a specific reason, but my guess is also their hand might be forced in the future to offer that as a layer on top, right? So I don't I don't know for sure when and how they're thinking about that, but I do think that's really interesting. And I think if Flower Co. or somebody does pick up traction with D2C, you'll just see people with bigger moats come and just offer it too and push the price down and, and compete with them. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's to answer the question of like why more people aren't using a service like Flower Co. I think you're right. I think it's marketing and I think it's people do, they want that, you know, DoorDash, Uber Eats, whatever experience where they can, they run out of weed, they run to the store down the street or they, you know, get on ease and they get a delivery in 45 minutes. But this is where brand is so important because this is exactly how I have made proof points of Flower Co. Hmm. Flower Co. doesn't pay me, by the way. They don't even have a referral program right now. I wish they did. I think I'd be doing quite well. Yeah, you talk about them a lot. Because I think it's magical. I think what they do is just different and unique. Um, But yeah, I mean, the ability to get half-price weed delivered to you with brands you recognize. See, this is the key, right? It's like, and that goes back to the brand conversation. If I know, let's go back to your Space Gems Hmm. example. If I know that I love space gems because they're two to one and I sleep the best when I eat them, right? And I go, forget MedMen. I go to the Green Goddess here in Venice, right? Nice local shop, reasonably priced. What do you pay for that pack of gummies? Probably 22 plus tax, so 30 bucks. 30 bucks, maybe more. And maybe 33, 33, 34. right? On Flower Co., you could have it delivered to you what is it? Eleven dollars? I, I know exactly what it was. It was eight packs for a hundred including tax and everything for $143. I gave him 160 bucks. So it was eight packs for twenty dollars after delivery, tax, and tip to have them delivered to the house. So instead of thirty to thirty-five dollars, what it would have cost in the store here, it was twenty dollars exactly is what my cost. And it could have been cheaper if I didn't tip. And the reason that you knew it was a good value was because of that brand. That gave you the ability. To compare. Hmm. Now, if you had gone to the store, you, you're used to getting Space Gems on Flower Co., right? You go to your local shop. They don't have Space Gems. Mm-hmm. But they say, oh, well, this is a two-to-one CBD THC gummy. I think you'll like it, too. It's actually double the price. Well, now what do you do as a consumer? You well, have- I had the same thing happen here in Venice a month ago. I went in. I forgot my gummies. I wanted to get some gummies because I was down here for a night or two. 
I went in. I asked if they had space gems. They said no. I asked for what the closest, you know, live resin or, you know, cold water hash gummy they had. It was some new Kiva live resin gummy. Yeah. And it was $31. Yeah. And it was okay. It was okay. It was just okay. Right. right? And um, I, I left the store going, I never want to go back to that store. Uh-huh. I never want to, you know, buy this product again. Right. And, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you about the brand, but... The brand works better, in my opinion, for derivative products, for gummies and vapes and things like that. Um, right. It tinctures than it does for the main market, which is flour. But Flour's that's a California story. Way more substitutable. I'll tell you why. When you go to other markets, people don't know what good flour is. Dude, I went to, I did a dispensary tour with a big, like, top 10 MSO three months ago. And we went to Pennsylvania and we went to Maryland and that we went fun. to. It was great. It was kind of exhausting, actually, but it was great. We had a fun time. These guys were really smart, like super top level, you know, t talent who have done really well in the cannabis industry and will continue to do well. Uh -huh. But they were selling their trim in Pennsylvania for $70 a quarter. Yeah. Do you, that's a $4,400 pound. That same trim sells for a hundred bucks a pound or so here in California. Yeah. yeah. So, um, of course, they don't call it trim in the packaging. They call yeah. it like, you know, some, some cool name, yeah. but like... That's how crazy those markets are. They can literally stuff trim in a bag in some places yes. and charge for it. Now, not all the markets are that bad. No, no. But I spend not. a good amount of time in Nevada and Arizona for other real estate reasons. So, like, I'm very familiar with what the weed quality is like there. It essentially looks like California weed, but doesn't taste or hmm. impact you the same way. And that's obvious, right? It's like, oh, they've figured out this, this bag appeal sort of element, and they're getting people to pay high prices, but... It's really not the same quality. Colorado's the same by, same way, by the way. Uh, some of my friends that are the biggest stoners in the world live in Colorado, and they'll hand down tell, hands down tell you the weed's just not as good as it is in California. You know, why is that? When it's grown indoor under the same lights and everything, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll figure that out. Something to do with like the water in Brooklyn, you know. Like, they just make better bagels. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter to most people, though. The new that's so true. Markets like that's 90, so true. Yeah, you know, and I think God, I'm like we're, we're we're going kind of all over the place, but I believe the key to the future of California is mixed light, mm -hmm. right? And so, like my friend Sean Clark um, and Big J, they own Monterey Botanicals. They have, I think, two hundred thousand square feet that that they cultivate there. And then they have another 200,000 square feet coming online that they're raising investment for um, in their new potter facility. They're growing weed, some of their weed, right? Not all of it, but some of it. It's easily passable for indoor, right? And they have never told me like their exact numbers of what they grow because obviously the growing costs, when people tell you their growing costs, it really is dependent of how much SG&A you're factoring in on top of that, right? Um, but my guess is they're growing, you know, not counting, you know, their SG&A and their whatever, the taxes and overhead, they're growing between $100 and $200 a pound, their cost. And they're getting, even on the bulk market, you know, $1,800 plus for a lot of that. Now, what equation as a business guy do you think is better? Growing weed for $150 a pound and selling it for $1,800 or growing it for $700 and selling it for $2,300? Yeah. Well, I've never been great at math. Yeah. But... Yeah. Pretty simple, right? Like pretty, pretty simple. simple equation. So simple. once federal legalization happens someday, and I think we're probably at least five or 10 years away from that. And of course, these big companies do not want federal legalization, no matter what they tell you publicly. There's no fucking way if you own one of five licenses in Pennsylvania or Virginia or Ohio that you want California weed being shipped in. That is the last thing that you want. You want to control your monopoly for as long as possible, True right? True story. So 
but once it does eventually open up, that mixed light segment, I believe, is going to be the key to everything. And, you know, I've, I've argued, you know, with Trent, I brought up Trent from Jushi earlier, Trent Wolovec, you know, he doesn't believe that at all. He thinks the price of indoor is going to come down and that price of indoor is going to basically push mixed light out. And why would you buy mixed light when you can buy, um, buy indoor? But I don't think that's true. I don't think they're going to get the price of indoor down enough. And I think the massive kind of cultivation square feet that you can pump out with good mixed light, they will get the environments better with mixed light. And they will continue to produce more and more mixed light until they just flood the market with mixed light. I think to your point, it doesn't matter how much they can drive down the price of indoor. People don't care. They don't care. Like the percentage of people that even know the difference between indoor and really quality mixed light or, or greenhouse. Like there's such a small percentage of people that can actually tell the difference. So what, they don't need to do that. Right. Um, and you it, don't need to appeal to everybody. You know, if you can sell it, it for half it. the price, like, and it's 95% the same, I mean, people are going to do the math. And of course, to your point, there will be these craft indoor growers yeah. and there will be like the ultimate, you know, weed connoisseurs that know the difference between the best indoor and average indoor and mixed light and worse mixed light and outdoor, of course. But mixed light is just in such a sweet spot in California, in my opinion, to really succeed if it's done right. And the economics from, you know, the way that you lease or own your buildings, the tax places that you're in, the tax, you know, liabilities that you have from the, the jurisdiction that you're in and everything else. If you've got it all nailed down, I just don't see how, how some of miss. these places are going to like yeah. not be the people that are exporting so, the weed to the world. By the same logic, I'm glad you said to the world, by the same logic, isn't it all going to shift down to the equator? Like at scale, you know, if we're talking about 20, 25 years from now, this is what happened with the traditional fresh cut flower industry, you know, it used to all be in Santa Barbara. Do you, do you, do you think that the states or the local government or the federal government is going to allow some jerk off at the equator to grow weed and ship it into the U.S. and avoid paying taxes? And Who said they'd avoid paying taxes? That's what we do with coffee. I just, I mean, to me, that is like way down the road. I just think it that is they, down the road, they're having enough time licensing okay. people in like... We're an hour and 12 minutes, minutes into the episode. So we're way down the road here. Um, I think that what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But if you're really investing for the long term, how can you say that mixed light in California is going to be the winner when... By the same logic, there's cheaper places. I mean, why not in Baja, California? You know, why not in Juarez? Like, well, I mean, again, there's going to be many winners. To be clear, right? Yeah, like, that's fair. You know, yeah. I have a friend who has a seven hundred thousand square foot of greenhouse in New Mexico. Right? Yeah. Costs like nothing. Cheap yeah. labor force. Yeah. Great sun. Like, yeah, yeah, that's going to win. Like to some extent. So, I'm just saying, I'm making the point that. There's this feeling I feel like for a long time that this indoor was going to be the big winner, right? And it's not, and I don't think indoor is going to be the big, it's not the big winner. No, it's once. expensive. It's very expensive, and again, as the quality comes up from those other ones, like they mix light and even the outdoor, right? Even autoflower, like look at the difference of autoflower seeds and and plants from five years ago. It's night and day. So you know, I would argue that most people that I give, excuse me, a real quality indoor to. They don't even like it. It's they, too they strong. Tr they trim it up too dense to... And... No, it, not even that. It's just, it's too much for them. Hmm. Like the really high quality, you know, if we're talking about Jungle Boys or, you know, like 
cookies, something like really gnarly that's like, you know, almost 30% THC. Like most people don't want that. They, they, even if they tell you they do... Yeah, you're bringing up a, the, the point, which is like, the buyers are buying out of safety on THC. So when you grow weed, you cultivate cannabis of some kind, you need to play the percentage game yeah, still. Right. But to your to your other point is like me and you and everybody else, like we're not smoking joints of 18% THC and saying like, damn, I wish I would have got higher. And, and we're not drinking Everclear either. Exactly. Exactly. But that's, I think that will really change when the, the more centralized buying starts to come in and these old school buyers get pushed out who have, you know, they're smoking crazy amounts of cannabis and have high tolerances and they want higher percentage stuff. They're mm-hmm. not the new consumer. It, they're it the all, opposite. It all goes together. It's also tied to what I believe is going to be a great shift of power away from physical retail locations and cannabis. I just think that once people figure out, I like this thing at this price and I can get it delivered to me, it's over. People don't need to go to the dispensary once a week and discover new products. They just don't. Hmm. Anyway. I I agree. I um, agree. Yeah, of course you agree, man. Of course you agree. That's why we're (laughs) friends. This is so well overdue. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you want to plug? There's going to be more of these, so I don't think we have to... Go too overboard. We could. No, I think we should do this every month or two. I think yeah. it's fun. I think you know we could talk about a lot more. Um, yeah, I guess you know what I want to plug. I would say, uh, you know, uh, in the next two weeks or so, probably around this time this podcast launches, I will have um, my site uh, called Smoky Mirrors. SmokyMirrors.co uh, will be up, and uh, that will be a daily newsletter and a podcast and again it's really focused on the bigger business of of cannabis bigger business with a cynical lens i would say (laughs) well i mean look there's two things that drive everybody in this there's fear and greed obviously i'm not i'm not the first person to to say that and i think that there's a lot of things to be greedy about right now in the future of cannabis and cannabis investing there's a lot of money that's going to be made over the next decade but there's a lot of people who are going to also lose their shirts and who have lost their shirts already and i think we need to be very careful about just plowing our money in very similar to cryptocurrencies right like big difference if you put your money in you know bitcoin or some you know shit coin at various times in the in the journey the last couple years or you know last 10 years so i just think cannabis is the same thing everything looks good on a pitch deck every idea looks great every new beverage concept markup looks like a winner you know don't be fooled by that you've got to learn to ask the right questions you've got to make sure your mo- you have a plan to get your money liquid i have made a ton of investing mistakes i have gotten money trapped in companies and you know had it there far longer with far less return than i've wanted i am not you know immune to those mistakes but i do think that you know we need to to help people because the people all over the world right now are dying to either invest or work in cannabis and almost none of them know where to go even really smart people who are sh- great investors in other aspects of of their financial life, they do not have the first clue where to invest in cannabis. And a lot of people are going to put money in the wrong places because they watch CNBC or they read a Seeking Alpha article. And I just think people need to be very, very careful of where they where they put their money and the difference between picking a 10x winner over the next five years versus a company that goes out of business is going to drastically impact your cannabis portfolio or maybe your portfolio overall. Very well said. And I think a nice little snippet of what What's to come? I think I'll probably be a guest on that show at some point, so you'll hear more about it. Um, we started the episode. Um, you said that your wife affectionately would introduce you as the king of <laughs> cannabis. How would you like to be introduced 
in the future? What, what, what kind of mark do you want to make on this industry? You know, I don't know. It's a, it's a really great question. I, I guess I haven't really thought about it. I, I would definitely, though, think of this whole like scarcity versus abundance mindset and the fact that there's going to be a bunch of great operators, there's going to be a bunch of great companies, there's going to be a bunch of great influencers, there's going to be great podcast hosts, you know, um, newsletter writers, whatever it is, right? There's going to be room for a lot of people to win and succeed. And I think that, you know, I want to be really seen as somebody who is part of an ecosystem of helping other people of introducing investors to investments, introducing, you know, companies like you do to the investors, you know, helping someone. I would love to get, you know, letters from people saying, man, like you really, you really helped me, right. To, to, um, to navigate this tricky journey to and learn whatever, you know, Mike Jennings, the CEO of the company I'm on the board of next green wave. He got an email from a couple. Um, I guess I can say this like six months ago and they had invested in his company, I think at like 10 cents a share. Uh-huh. And they had made a half a million dollars and they sold their stock for their retirement. And wow. they wrote him a letter and they said, we just wanna say thank you because you changed our lives. We made more money in this stock than we had in our whole life. Mm-hmm. And because of you know Next Green Wave, we're now able to retire. And he was really appreciative of that. And I think he felt you know, really, really good that he got to, for the first time, not just see some you know, hedge fund manager or somebody, but actually see a regular person, a regular couple, an older couple who wasn't mm-hmm. financially that savvy, right. take a chance on him, listen to him, believe in him, and make money at that. And that made him feel really good and want to do it again. So I think that's what I want, right? I can't wait to get this stuff launched, and I hope that you know a couple people can, can have the same stories from me sharing my Well, that's a fantastic story, but... There's even, you know, a lot short of that. I have people tell me all the time, hey, I, I heard about a company on your show and I work there now. Oh, that's cool. You know, that's rad, right? Or like, you wrote me an email and said, hey, I like your show. Can we meet? And two years ago, two years later, we're here doing this, right? So like, that's, I, I see my, my role similarly as a connector or bridge or whatever other metaphors you want to use, but... Um, Always a pleasure, man. Yeah, it's great, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, much more to come. Much more to come. The king of cannabis. I don't know if you're ready for that yet. Definitely not. (laughs) But my wife. Let's let my wife think that. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. See ya.